Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. Welcome to the SFT Creationist versus Evolution podcast. This is episode one, and we are debating genetic entropy. I have Praise I Am, who will be moderating, keeping time, and taking questions for this first epic episode on the SFT Debate podcast. Praise I Am, I'm going to hand it over to you for some words of introduction. As Praise I Am, I'll be sitting as the mod tonight. I'll just be here guiding the discussion along, but before the discussion gets started, we'll just do brief intros so the audience can get acquainted with the speakers tonight. So we'll hand it off to Donnie first, since he is the main man of the channel. And uh, what's up, Donnie? What's up, dude? And uh, just a few things about what you're up to. And um, this for the audience, so they maybe get a little bit more informed of what's going on tonight. And then we'll hand it off to Taylor after that. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, praise I am. Since this is episode one, I see some questions already coming in. And so, yes, this is the new SFT podcast. So these debates are going to be audio only. And so we decided to do them live on YouTube for people to enjoy. Then we, uh, myself, I'll go in, edit it a little bit, and then we upload them to our uh, SFT podcast website. And so all you're going to see during the uh, debate itself is the SFT podcast creation versus evolution conversations template. And so praise, good to have you here to moderate. Snake was right. Taylor from the Snake was right YouTube channel. Always a pleasure. Uh, I know he's had a ton of debates. We've gone back and forth with each other numerous times over the last three or four years. I've done a hundred formal debates. If uh, we were to include informal debates, impromptu, open mic discussions, it's probably closer to 200. But I am really looking forward to these uh, series of podcast debates. And so I've already got a few lined up. Again, this is episode one. We're specifically debating, is genetic entropy a legitimate problem for evolution? Of course, I would say yes, so I'm in the affirmative, and Taylor would say no. And so, Praise, thank you so much uh, for being here again, and yeah, that's basically it for my intro. Man, looking forward to this. Uh, this is sort of a new thing that uh, is being introduced here, so I can't wait to see how it works out. But uh, Taylor, also, maybe you could give a brief intro for the audience just to let people know about yourself, what you're up to, and all that stuff. Hey, well, uh, you know, same as always. Uh, I do uh, religious scientific topics and uh, 
sometimes politics and philosophy and I'm uh you know I try to distinguish myself from the my fellow atheists because I am um anti moral relativism anti communism uh but I try and do source methods for all topics and I also run a debate channel called debate cafe with my uh best friend who's a actual professional debate coach so we're going to be starting back of uh, um, regular debates and check us out. Awesome. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. Check that out. And uh, before we get started here, I just want to briefly give the format for the audience. We'll have 12 minute openings, eight minute rebuttals, 50, a 50 minute discussion, and then a five minute closing. And then we'll have the Q and A's with super chats if there's time left, I'm not sure. We'll see how it plays out, and we'll just play it by ear. But uh, SFT will start us off tonight, and whenever you're ready, Donnie, I'll start the time for you, and I'll give you a two-minute warning as well. Well, thank you uh, very much there. Praise I am. I made a joke that these podcast discussions or debates are a little bit more relaxing than your formal ones. I didn't even have to put on my blue SFT shirt today and uh doki doki bible club my brother in the chat says we know you're wearing one anyways <laughs> i've got seven blue sf t-shirts one for every single day of the week <laughs> um okay so with a little humor out of the way let's let's get right into it and actually one thing i should notice since i'm actually in the discussion itself for those that want to ask audience questions please make sure you're tagging um at praise I am, would you say praise for questions? Yes, yes. Okay. Praise I am. I'll, I'll just tag it right now. Awesome. Okay, I'm gonna start my my timer here. All right. What is genetic entropy? Genetic entropy is a concept built on the observation that the mutation rate is high and that most mutations are too subtle to be removed by natural selection or differential reproduction. There exists variation in reproduction numbers within a population, as in some members <clears throat> of, a, of a population will reproduce more than others. This is why a mutation must be large enough to affect reproduction in order for selection to see it and therefore remove it from the equation. Selection is basically a fine tuning mechanism and it keeps a species as strong as it can be. Selection also involves the death of individuals. This means selection is limited. You can't select away an entire population since that would result in immediate extinction. It can only ever slow down the degeneration process. It can never solve the degeneration problem as we will see in this debate. Now, genetic degeneration and the accumulation of low impact mutations is a very serious problem for evolutionary theory. It is a challenge that has not yet been answered. The answer to tonight's question therefore is yes, Genetic entropy is a legitimate challenge. It's a very real challenge to evolutionary theory. 
genetic degeneration has to do with what? Well, it has to do with mutations. Mutations are mistakes or errors that occur during the DNA replication process. They are essentially changes in the nucleotide sequence of DNA. Mutations can also be caused by environment, from chemicals or radiation, for example. Even though we have these amazingly designed, these intricate DNA repair systems that are built into the genomes of life, evidence of forward thinking that brings us right back to the forward thinker. Well, this replication process, even in light of these incredibly designed DNA repair systems and enzymes, the replication process, it's imperfect. And many mutations get through each generation. Now, according to evolutionary theory, the evolutionary story, mutations are the driving force for evolutionary change. To take your fish to amphibian, your amphibian to a reptile and your reptiles to mammals, this requires the necessary variation or genetic diversity for selection to act upon. And according to evolutionary theory, mutations are what provide this necessary variation for selection to act upon to take single-celled-like ancestors into whales over billions of years. Genetic degeneration or genetic entropy relates the greatest to the long-term persistence of complex organisms, such as higher mammals, humans and elephants, for example. Complex life forms such as humans have relatively small population sizes. They also have slow reproductive rates. These organisms will have the most challenging time surviving the consequences of genetic degeneration, since deleterious mutations affect higher or more complex organisms the most. Now, every time the cell divides, more mistakes are added to the genome. Again, mutations are basically just changes in the nucleotide sequence of DNA. Most of the uh, mutations we accumulate, though, in a lifetime occur in somatic cells. An example of a somatic cell would be a skin cell. And so fortunately, those are not passed on, but they are a primary reason why biological organisms age and eventually die. Now, although mutations in somatic cells are not passed on to the next generation, mutations that occur in reproductive cells, egg or sperm cells, for example, can be passed on to the individual's progeny. The mutation rate in humans, it's high. It's roughly 100 new mutations per person per generation. Michael Lynch documents the human mutation rate in his paper titled Mutation and Human Exceptionalism, Our Future Genetic Load. Anybody familiar with my debates knows that I love slides, I love visuals, and I love backing up all of my arguments with citations. And so you can either see my previous debates, my previous uh, presentations on genetic entropy, and also uh, my articles and books for uh, visuals and the uh, citations for you to look into. And so he says an average newborn contains roughly 100 de novo mutations. Okay, 
So moving on here, to prevent genetic decline and eventual extinction, there has to be a type of selection that can filter out these harmful mutations accumulating each generation. Population geneticists struggle to explain how species, not just in humans though, how they can survive for long periods of time in light of this high mutation rate. Natural selection is also severely hindered by something termed selection interference. This is because selecting for one trait interferes with selecting for another trait. There's just far too much genetic noise that results in severe limitations in selection. Selection interference profoundly limits selection efficiency. Now, the reason for this is when you have billions of traits segregating in the population, the selection process actually starts to work against itself. This means selection can only end up choosing from the best and the worst mutations. But the nearly neutral mutations, your low impact mutations, they build up and they continue on unchecked and unnoticed by selection. That means they're only subject to genetic drift. And so they spread, they cause disease, and they degenerate. And there's nothing selection can do about it. The major problem for those that want to believe whales and strawberries are related through common ancestry is that mutations are catastrophic. Remember, it is the evolutionist that explains the vast majority, if not all, DNA diversity and variation as being the result of what? Mutations over time. Us as biblical creationists, we have a very different explanation for the origin of the majority of your autosomal DNA differences, your nuclear DNA. And that would be through what is called created heterozygosity or design diversity. But it's a problem for the evolutionary model because they are explaining almost all genetic variation as being the result of disease-causing mutations. Mutations, they degenerate. Simply put, they are destruction and not construction. Mutations are the main source for death and pain. What can we do to stop genetic degeneration? Serious population geneticists acknowledge this real problem of deleterious mutation accumulation. Here are some important quotes. This is one from Kitely, Peter D., and Michael Lynch. And they say, in summary, the vast majority of mutations are deleterious. These are not young earth creationists. These are evolutionary population geneticists that are saying, and I quote, this is one of the most well-established principles of evolutionary genetics supported by both molecular and quantitative genetic data. That is a quote from a paper titled Toward a Realistic Model of Mutations Affecting Fitness. Dr. Kimura, world-famous population geneticist, said under the present model, effectively neutral, but in fact, so here's the answer to the question, what does effectively neutral mean? Well, Kimura says, but in fact, very slightly deleterious mutants accumulate continuously in every species. And then Dr. Kimura goes into the rate of loss of fitness per generation. And it is, it is high. It is very high. And in the paper titled The Distribution of Fitness Effects, 
of new mutations, Iyer Walker and Kitely say, it seems unlikely that any mutation is truly neutral in the sense that it has no effect on fitness. Notice this next line. All mutations must have some effect, even if that effect is vanishingly small. That's from the paper again, the distribution of fitness effects of new mutations. And so two minutes. Thank you very much. And so we have these nearly neutral or effectively neutral mutations that are only slightly deleterious to the information systems of biological organisms. They're invisible to selection, but they're not strictly neutral. And so they accumulate like rust molecules on the car. And over time, the genomes of living organisms, they what? They rust out. They degenerate. Christopher Roop and Dr. John Sanford sum up the problem of genetic degeneration perfectly. And so I am just going to quote them from Contested Bones. The human mutation rate is roughly 100 new mutations per person per generation, they say. The eight mutation rate is similar. Almost none of these mutations are beneficial. The new ENCODE findings reveal that most of the human genome is functional. Hence, most random changes in the genome must be deleterious. Notice this part. Even if 90% of the genome is perfectly neutral junk DNA, which is no longer feasible, there would still be about 10 harmful mutations arising in every person, every generation. Even the most fit individuals are still more mutant than their parents. So even intense selection against the less fit cannot stop mutation accumulation. We've got just over 30 seconds here. I'll start to wrap up and finish this quote. Christopher Roop and Dr. Sanford say, because most deleterious mutations cannot be selected away, they will accumulate continuously from one generation to the next. And here's the last part of my opening statement. Give me 20 seconds here. The reason we as humans are not extinct is because we are not the product of evolutionary processes. We are a product of special creation. Since man was created thousands of years ago, it makes sense that we have not had the necessary time to go extinct through deleterious mutation accumulation. If humans have been evolving and adding mutations to the gene pool every generation for millions of years, evolving through primate ancestors, we should not be here. We would have gone extinct a very long time ago. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you so much, SFT. Um, now it is a uh, Taylor's turn. If whenever you want to start the timer, Taylor, I'll start it for you and uh, we'll get into your get your uh, intro. All right. Uh, so um, first of all, I think that the word entropy is chosen for a reason. It's the concept is supposed to be it's inevitable. So that's a requirement for this concept of genetic entropy. Um, and, but it kind of betrays this uh, misunderstanding of what entropy even is. And I think that would be a, a good thing to discuss to kind of um, wade into the topic. Um, so entropy actually does not mean continuous degradation. We observe systems becoming spontaneously more complex without any intelligent input all the time. Um, one example is the abiogenesis experiments. Can, even though, you know, it, I'm not using them to argue for the origin of life at this point, uh, it does show unambiguously that chemicals will spontaneously form complex formations um, through various uh, reactions. Um, 
And so it's the way different process processes interact that gives us complexity. If one process is limiting in a specific way to another, that means only products that make it past that limitation will be left. So you're left with a biased pool of products. Um, so like natural meteorites are found with the biases for certain amino acid and antimers due to these natural processes. When random math would tell us that it should be roughly 50-50, that's not what we see. Chemistry um, can act against entropy. Um, which if you actually took um, like collegiate level chemistry or something, um, you actually have to calculate entropy, things like that. Um, spontaneous order can form in chemistry. Um, and so the claim that it's inevitable degeneration of all things, like as a law of physics, is just a false interpretation because temporary order forms spontaneously by increasing entropy over here and decreasing it over there. And that that's observable and demonstrable in non-evolutionary sciences. Um, so it's not just all going in one direction all at the same time. Some parts of the universe increase in entropy while others decrease and likewise complexity. Um, so the main claim of genetic entropy is that it's inevitable. Um, and so we'll, this is based on just a handful of um, pretty obvious mistakes if you look at the how they came to these conclusions. So John Sanford, the inventor of the term genetic entropy, uh, writes in his book, Genetic Entropy, quote, it can be very reasonably argued that random mutations are never good. Uh, nothing actually backs this claim. Um, he misuses Moto Kimura's data, um, and this fundamental mistake is what his entire book is based on. Uh, Sanford says, Kimura obviously considered beneficial mutations so rare as to be outside of consideration. Now, Kimura, in one of his papers, did say he disregarded beneficial mutations, but Sanford's either ignorant or dishonest about why. Um, adding beneficial mutation mutants in this in his paper completely overwhelmed selection among neutral mutants, and evolution rates skyrocketed in the positive direction. So Sanford's entire concept of genetic entropy is based on this um, number taken from Kimura where he deliberately leaves out beneficial mutations, which he acknowledges isn't realistic. Um, and if included, a very effectively counteracted slightly deleterious mutation accumulation. And Kimura said this, um, and he didn't leave them out because they're so rare. He did it because he wanted to study neutral selection only. So this, uh, uh foundation of Sanford's idea is actually just cherry picked from an unrealistic, um, very specific niche type of calculation. Um, so I guess Stanford ignored this um, or doesn't know about it. Uh, he will often set beneficial mutations to zero and set his population size to 1,000 in his supposedly realistic models of evolution, despite it being explicitly unrealistic. Um, Population sizes at about 1,000 and under are highly vulnerable to extinction via mutational meltdown, which is kind of what genetic entropy is. Um, on timescales, approximately 100 generations, according to Lynch et al., um, 1995, where the study, they study extinction via mutation accumulation. Um, and this only occurs in nature in these very specific circumstances. And it just so happens that Sanford's conclusions about the human race are based on very narrow conditions in these dangerous population, dangerously low population levels of a thousand with no beneficial mutations, which is extremely unrealistic and at risk by design. And it's interesting then that Sanford stands by 
the biblical tale where the entire world was populated by a single incestuous family twice. Um, and so even by his numbers, we'd be dead a hundred times over. Um, and it's obviously false that there are no beneficial mutations. So let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, for example, in humans, there's a, um, a mutation uh, that confers human resistance to HIV. It's a deletion. So, um, there's this, this concept called fitness landscape. So fitness goes up and it goes down with peaks and valleys. And often what happens is something is added via mutation that's that's harmful. And then that mutation itself further mutates or there are other mutations that affect it and it's pruned away. And then it's better than it was before the addition. And that's exactly what we see um, in nature and in, in the laboratory. Uh, one of the drivers of adaptive peaks is compensatory mutations, which are effectively mutations or of deleterious mutations. Um, they, the mutations themselves later mutate. That's one of the things that um, Sanford's models do, doesn't uh, account for. Um, and these compensatory mutations fix them. So fitness goes up and down. Sanford's model doesn't account for this. Mutations have uh, fixed effects in his model, and he generally adds in zero beneficial mutations or compensatory mutations. Um, they've been shown to suppress deleterious and pleiotropic interactions between mutations and to fix individual mutations. So this is exactly the problem that genetic entropy uh, brings up as a challenge. Um, so there's different mixtures of neutral or slightly deleterious mutations that can actually flip and become beneficial if they interact well with each other. And this has been studied in animals, which can help stabilize protein mutations, um, like in uh, hemoglobin or, or egg proteins. So was deleterious in one mixture is compensatory in another, or some compensatory mutations are specific to certain effects or even specific deleterious mutations. Uh, in Salmonella experiments, they're mutated and evolved into a less fit strain after evolving antibiotic resistance. They went into a valley. And this trait negatively affected protein synthesis, bacterial growth, growth, and virulence. But then they kept evolving them and put them back into wild conditions where they fully recovered all of those measures of fitness and they retained their antibiotic resistance, which showed in real time that not only did the negative mutation accumulation get corrected, but they were actually more fit than before any of this mutation occurred. But they had to go down and then back up. Um, so it's not a straight line. Um, and compensatory mutations are more likely to affect the more severe deleterious mutations. Um, it's about a ratio of nine to one that can fix them. So Sanford's ignorance on this topic in his models displays a severe problem for the genetic entropies, uh, in inevitability and just its working concept. Um, there were experiments breaking hemoglobin. It was shown that random compensatory mutations could effectively fix its functions. And it wasn't back mutation, which restored the old sequence. It was a new sequence with the same function. Um, compensatory mutations are so powerful that they've studied um, these fish that uh, don't go through recombination. And they uh, ran models and uh, just compensatory mutations could basically halt genomic decay in these species. It's important to constantly remind ourselves too that deleterious mutations are not deleterious in every individual. It's it's based on what mutations they have and the environment. 
Um, and Sanford claimed to test this, but again, he set beneficial mutations to zero and population size to the dangerous range of a thousand. Um, even though we saw compensatory mutations are important and frequent, and that's why he doesn't add them. They give effects that shouldn't be possible if genetic entropy was true. Epistasis will help um, bring down the uh, deleterious mutants as well, um, because people have different combinations of, of different mutations, and basically that means that there's different levels of selectability. Um, and uh, Kondrashov says that Epistasis can effectively halt the action of Muller's ratchet, which is essentially uh, genetic entropy, um, but only in certain conditions. Um, and of course, no single method will ever be able to solve uh, deleterious mutation accumulation on its own, but these processes do it simultaneously, and Sanford tests these independently, but never together, even though in reality we see them acting in organisms together, not separately. Um, so. We've demonstrated that Sanford's model isn't realistic because it leaves out compensatory mutations and other beneficial mutations, uh, operates in highly dangerous zones of genetic diversity, possibly intentionally, and tests these variables independently, even though they operate together in reality. Sanford's model, Mendel's accountant, has only been published in computer science, not in the biological sciences, um, and that's this is why. So... Just to go over how absurd the concept on paper is, uh, Sanford claims nearly neutral mutations are invisible to selection and yet simultaneously harmful to the population. This is a contradiction. Evolutionary fitness is defined by being selected for or against, but then Sanford claims fitness goes down while mutations are invisible. Um, so unless he's claiming the entire population just suddenly hits a wall um, and can't take anymore, uh, this is a fundamental contradiction. Um, once accumulation starts to be harmful, either epistatically or otherwise, that crosses the threshold and is now visible to selection and is maintained at the mutation selection balance. In other words, if there are high numbers of deleterious mutations, the number of possible new deleterious mutations decreases and the number of possible beneficial mutations increases. And there's about a nine to one ratio of compensatory mutations that can fix any individual deleterious mutation. We also saw that uh, there are well, you heard that there are several mutations increasing, mutational increases to fitness and purges of deleterious effects in real time in living organisms, not computer models, that shouldn't be possible if genetic entropy was true. And there are several species uh, like mice, bacteria, and viruses that should have gone extinct by now um, due to their fast generation time if genetic entropy was true. So these facts are preclusionary to genetic entropy. Um, it's based on unrealistic numbers, unrealistic models. Um, Sanford and Carter produced pretty bad methodology. They produced a paper about flu extinction uh, due to mutation accumulation, and it claims a strain of H1N1 went extinct in 2009. Meanwhile, they in the paper, there's data for it surviving till 2012, and they're comparing a 1918 avian flu to the human H3N2 seasonal flu and claiming they're the same strain. So this is this is just bad methodology on every level. Every piece of data backing genetic entropy is literally just clownery and cherry picking. All right, yeah. thank you so much, Taylor. We're going to head into the. We're going to move into the next portion of this discussion tonight, and that is the eight-minute rebuttal session. So, whenever you're ready, SFT, we'll start your timer. Also, do you want me to give you a two-minute warning with this as well? Yes, please. Yes. Got it. And those are the nice things you have to say about it, eh, Snake? Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Okay, so here we go. Just one second. Start my timer. And we're moving quick. So I'm starting my timer now. Eight-minute rebuttal. Here we go. So Taylor talked about the word entropy and abiogenesis. Entropy, when applied to genetics, simply means that genomes are going downhill and not uphill. There is a general trend towards degeneration, and that general trend towards degeneration has to do with these low-impact mutations that are accumulating from generation to generation. So I always say to the evolutionists that have this problem with the word entropy in light of what we're discussing here, you can simply use the uh, term genetic degeneration instead. Uh, in terms of abiogenesis, I don't even need to go into abiogenesis to refute a naturalistic origin of life, since if mutation accumulation is indeed an unsolvable problem for evolutionary theory, and therefore humans are not related to chimpanzees and strawberries because of it, then by definition, abiogenesis did not happen. So I can stay as close to home as possible. Let's stay within you know, human evolution, if you'd like. Because genetic degeneration, the reality of genetic degeneration tells us that humans and chimpanzees are not related. And so if humans and chimpanzees aren't related, then humans and strawberries definitely aren't related. So Taylor mentioned uh, Kimura, and he said that uh, Sanford ignored or misrepresented Kimura. Actually, I hear some background noise uh, if you want to mute. That is not the case, though. Kimura simply claimed adaptive mutations. And you can see the quote yourself. He just kind of threw it out there. He claimed that this problem, which he acknowledged was a problem, nearly neutral mutation accumulation is real. But he simply just claimed without evidence that adaptive mutations could solve the problem of low impact mutation accumulation. That's all he did. He just made an assertion. He made a claim and then moved on. But we have more data today that falsifies that claim. Beneficial mutations, they're rare. They occur about one in a million. And when they do occur, for the most part, they're reductive. Think of sickle cell anemia, for example. Yes, it's, it has a localized benefit to those with malaria. These deformed hemoglobin proteins, okay, people with sickle cell anemia, they, they can thrive in cases of malaria, but sickle cell anemia is due to a broken gene, broken cell, broken protein. And so it's, it's reductive. It's still functionally compromising to the organism. Now, Snake mentioned one or two, uh, an IV, uh, HIV example of a beneficial mutation that he thinks is truly beneficial and not reductive or functionally compromising in any way. But that's focusing on the minutiae. What we need to do is focus on the bigger picture. The bigger question, the major problem is what? Net gain versus net loss. And so for sake of argument, you can have 50 truly beneficial mutations that are not reductive. I don't believe they exist. I believe any beneficial mutation manifested by the evolutionists we could demonstrate is either the result of uh, epigenetic change and therefore the result of the built-in capacity to adapt in the first place or reductive loss of a pre-existing system, pre-existing uh, systems breaking down. Basically, we see that in bacteria. We, there's many papers about bacteria and how they experience reductive evolution. We see that in, in the Lenski experiment where Lenski's bacterial populations due to 
several episodes of adaptation, they've actually shrunk in functional genome size. They've painted themselves into a corner. They're lazy. If you put them back into the natural environment, they would be dead on arrival. And so all of their mutations are reductive in a sense. They're losing genes short-term, but it's actually long-term degeneration. And so Dr. Sanford, he didn't ignore Kimura's statements. He recognized the fact that beneficial mutations are far too rare to ever counterbalance the damage. Now, Taylor also talked about um, compensatory mutations, mutations basically that will compensate for the loss being done by these degenerative mutations, okay? But these kind of mutations, they won't counterbalance the damage. Back mutations don't help either because they're, they're far too rare. It's as if they are not occurring. They're occurring, but the genomes of living organisms are being flooded with so many deleterious mutations and the mutation rate is so high that it's almost like they're not occurring, okay? So trying to compensate for degeneration through these types of compensating mutations is like trying to fix your vehicle that is slowly rusting out by continuing to get what? Regular oil changes, changing your tires when the treading is low, switching your wiper blades when they've broken down. Yes, you can slow down degeneration, but you can't stop it. And so beneficial mutations don't work. These types of compensating mutations don't work. Synergistic epistasis doesn't work. Snake can clarify, but I believe these types of uh, compensating mutations apply to the mechanism of synergistic epistasis. Now, waiting for a single desirable beneficial mutation, while many thousands to millions of deleterious mutations are accumulating in all sorts of nucleotide sites, only increases fitness in a very narrow sense but absolute functionality always goes down. And so a narrow increase in fitness or a localized episode of compensation that Taylor here is pointing to only results in a shrinking functional genome size, as we've seen in Lenski's bacteria. And all of this has been looked at in Mendel's accountant, highly sophisticated program Dude. that... Thank you. Highly sophisticated program, basically, that uh, Taylor spent some time rebutting. And these results have been published in, in secular journals, okay? They haven't been refuted. Mendel's accountant is user-specific. As in, you can, you can input whatever settings you want. They can be realistic or unrealistic. And whenever you input realistic conditions, evolution fails and genetic degeneration is inevitable. And so what they've done through this program is they've, they've been generous, way more beneficial mutations than is realistic. They've uh, run simulations with intense selection applied. And yet genetic degeneration, guess what? It still occurs. It's still inevitable. Okay. Another thing he said that it's, it's a contradiction. I've got a minute here. It, he said it's a contradiction to say mutations are nearly neutral, unselectable, and also deleterious. No, it's not a contradiction because it just means that they are not detrimental enough to kill the organism. And that's where we have to get into absolute fitness versus reproductive fitness, okay? Let's say I'm hit with a mutation that decreases my lifespan by 15 years. Okay, well, that's an example of a reduction in my absolute fitness or total functionality. But in terms of reproductive fitness, it, it doesn't do much because I can still have kids. I can still pass on my genes. And there are a lot of mutations that result in disease 
that are degenerative, but they're not big enough to stop that organism from reproducing. And that's why the major problem has to do with the low impact mutations. And I don't believe Taylor is adequately dealing with those. And that's eight minutes. So I yield. Uh, very, actually, it was a perfect timing there, SFT. Thank you so much for your rebuttal. We'll hand it off to Taylor now for his eight-minute rebuttal. And uh, whenever you're ready, go ahead, Taylor. Oh, I think you're Wait, muted, you muted, Taylor. Yeah. You're right. All right. Um. Okay, so you claimed a few times that there's a general trend towards degeneration, um, but there's actually no data to back that up uh, other than Mendel's accountant, which never I've read multiples of the, of his published papers. I've all the ones that I could find were just published through ICR. That was creationist uh, journals. Um, and he never uses realistic conditions. And unlike computer programs which you can design to have the effects that you basically want um, in real life we don't observe genetic entropy at all in fact we observe higher fitness in organisms like the salmonella that i brought up it adapted it had a hit to fitness and then it adapted again and then it was more fit than it was when it started and we can go into that and I can show you the quotations later. Um, but that all empirical evidence is showing that what Sanford is saying is impossible is actually observed in real life in actual organisms, not computer code. So there's there must be a problem with the user or the code if it's giving results that contradict reality. So um, there's about... I know you said there's uh, 100 mutations per cycle. There's about 124, but only four of them are actually deleterious. Most of them are, are nearly neutral um, or compensatory. Um, and, and no, compensatory mutations are not synonymous with epistasis, uh, but compensatory mutations can work with epistasis. So uh, Kimura was not studying... Uh, deleterious mutation accumulation specifically, he was actually studying neutral selection. Uh, so he didn't mention it, but the only, and the only thing that he assumed was that there were likely going to be bottlenecks that occurred. He didn't assume that um, that beneficial mutations got rid of the problem. He actually calculated that, and they do. They just do it way too well for realistic models. So that's that's why he left it out is because. If you add in even a small amount of beneficial mutations, according to Kimura's models, it gets rid of the problem of slightly deleterious mutation accumulation. And so if, if you're constantly accumulating slightly deleterious or neutral mutations, which there are some purely neutral mutations, they're called synonymous mutations, uh, and they're purely neutral because they give the same amino acid. The protein is going to be the same. So um, next example, I guess, uh, Lenski doesn't show genetic entropy just because um, the bacteria are losing genes doesn't mean that they're losing fitness. They're adapting to a different um, environment. But again, the salmonella bacteria experiments, they show that they actually get more fit after 
mutation. Um, and the Lensky bacteria are fine. They're not degrading. They're just the the parts that they're losing are not necessary. So that's why they're losing it. Um, and so that, that there's no connection there to genetic entropy. Uh, I never mentioned sickle cell, but um, the the thing that I mentioned was about hemoglobin was not about sickle cell. It was about the effects of compensatory mutations and how likely it is for a compensatory mutation to fix a protein. And it also shows the anti-fragility of proteins and genes where there are multiple fixes to one problem. And there, there was one experiment where they showed there were nine fixes to each problem about. Um, and also on the subject of sickle cell, um, heterozygous sickle cell actually has healthy cells but retain some immunity to uh, malaria. So that actually is a beneficial mutation. Um, the, and uh, so, yeah, but I'm not sure where the numbers you're getting are, where you're saying that there's there's no way that compensatory mutations can fix the problem. You'd have to actually calculate that um, in actual living models, it does. So we don't have perfect models of this. We don't know exactly why it happens, but pointing that out is not actually a defeater because we can observe populations that actually go through the opposite of genetic entropy, which is a, an actual preclusionary defeater for genetic entropy. Um, so we observe that populations are able to get over genetic entropy. We don't quite we know how to mathematically model it perfectly. That's not a defeater. Um, so beneficial mutations are rare, but you don't need many of them. Um, and you can have a ratio highly in favor of deleterious mutations because they're all being taken out of the population. In fact, the majority of them are of the worst ones are already taken out of the population before you're even born. Um, gametes uh, get the brunt of the worst ones that that don't end up fertilized. So um, yeah, I guess I would like to know why you claim compensatory mutations won't solve the problem. I'd like to see the math. Um, and Talking about the operation, uh, the the contradiction that Two I minutes. mentioned earlier, it's uh, it is a problem because if these are slightly deleterious and accumulating, they should be becoming slowly becoming selectable, and due to epistasis, some mixtures become more selectable than others, and so. And during this whole time, you're also getting compensatory mutations. And so different mixtures are giving you working mixtures. And you're getting, on top of that, compensatory mutations. And on top of that, beneficial mutations being rare are will also compensate. And you don't need many of them in the models. And... Um, there, and basic selection and recombination gets rid of the majority of the deleterious mutations. And so most of them remain neutral, effectively neutral. 
and they'll remain that way. And as soon as the population approaches that threshold where you have all like most of your most or half of your um, genes are replaced with mutations or deleterious mutations, they definitely become selectable. And that's where the mutation selection balance is, is because around that threshold, you're going to have some mutations that bring you back towards fitness and some mutations that bring you towards less fitness. And if you cross that threshold, those are selected out. Um, and again, if you have mostly mutations at that point, then the it becomes more likely once a gene has already been mutated it's more likely that the next mutation is actually going to fix it or give it a um give it some sort of beneficial interaction or compensation and this has been modeled and has been observed in model organisms and there's and all of the data that uh Sanford and folks can come up with is actually all it is is just some computer models they don't have any actual empirical data which fits the computer wrap, models. wrap it up i'm done awesome so that ends the individual portion of this debate tonight we're going to go into the shared portion where both of you guys will have a open discussion it'll be 50 minutes long, uh, we'll just a natural free-flowing discussion. We'll let SFT begin the discussion here, and uh, yeah, let's keep it going. Okay, thank you, Praise. Thank you, Snake. <clears throat> so many points. It's almost like we need another rebuttal, but <laughs> hopefully we'll be able to touch on all of them. So I'll try and pick one of the many. I appreciate your opening and your uh, rebuttal. Appreciate you looking into this for this debate. Um, you mentioned beneficial mutations, synonymous mutations. I definitely want to uh, discuss, but it seems like you're really hung up on your uh, mutations that that supposedly compensate for the uh, degeneration. But you did you did mention you, you said more or less if they are slightly deleterious and accumulating, then they should by definition slowly become selectable. And then when you bring in uh, synergistic epistasis, some become more selectable <coughs> than others. So I guess my first question to you would be, is you're slightly deleterious mutations. And I provided several citations, for example, one from, one from Kitely, Michael Lynch, and Peter D, where they pointed out that the vast majority of mutations are deleterious. And this is well-established. This is one of the most well-established principles of evolutionary genetics. And then we also had uh, Kitely point out that it seems unlikely that any mutation is truly neutral in the, in the sense that it has no effect on fitness. So the point is your detrimental mutations, yes, they're high impact. Selection can see them. There's no reproduction. Selection has to do with the death of individuals, right? So let me circle back to my basic question. So yes, mutations can accumulate that are low impact. They're only slightly deleterious, like a single spelling mistake in a book the size of an encyclopedia, let's say. On their own, they're inconsequential. But as they build up over time, they become a problem. And so my, my direct question to what you said there 
has to do with the fact that by the time these mutations build up in a population to where they do become noticeable, it's, it's a type of mutation count mechanism in a way, or some have called it carrying capacity. By the time enough mutations have accumulated in that population, that entire population is multiply mutant. And so selection's limited. How do you deal with that, Taylor? The fact that your entire population would be mutant. And so you're basically just picking, selection's basically just picking between more mutant, some a little less mutant, but nonetheless, every single individual in that population has accumulated mutations and are therefore more mutant than their parents, than their grandparents. Go ahead, take your time. So you're starting off with the assumption that we started off with some sort of perfect genome, whereas you could pick any point in time and it's actually going to just, it, it's all mutant. So uh, the question being why, like, sorry, what was the question again? Well, I, with what you said, I think is a major issue because yes, as I pointed out in my opening, the evolutionary model would suggest that all DNA variation, all DNA diversity for the most part is the result of mutations over time. But in real time today, I mean, we have famous geneticists like Crow and Lynch that concluded humans are degenerating at a rate of between one to 5% fitness each generation. So yeah, you're, you would look back to ancestors over millions of years and those DNA differences have always been due to mutations. But if today we see those mutations are mostly deleterious, disease-causing, damaging, then how could you look to all the variation in the genome and say, well, that's been built up over millions of years of evolutionary process? No, because the mutations put shelf lives on genomes in the first place. If you want, but feel free to respond to that. Well, there's there's no evidence of that. <laughs> so there's so if you take humans, for example, we could be degenerating. It doesn't actually matter because we have very little selection. So we're not a good evolutionary model because we've effectively cut out selection from our populations. Um, but uh, I'm looking for There was a study, the X chromosome and rate of deleterious mutations in humans. This found that there was uh, about four deleterious mutations per human zygote. So... Um, that might contradict your citations a little bit, but, um, that, that is just deleterious, not slightly deleterious. So, uh, we can focus on how slightly deleterious mutations are selected. Um, you claim they're not selectable by compensatory mutations or by, well, they're not, they're not fixable by compensatory mutation. They're not selectable by epistasis. Um, so the, the argument would essentially be, well, would you agree that it is selectable with, by epistasis, but you're saying that everything in the selection pool has these mutations in it, so, it's a, so it doesn't matter? Right. So basically, because we have an increasing genetic load, and everybody is therefore multiply mutant, I mean, take every single person on the planet today seven to eight billion people. Every single person has accumulated roughly 100 new mutations per person, per individual. That means every living person would be more mutant than their parents, 
more mutant than their grandparents. And so the problem is selection, it can't sort out the good, the bad, and let's say the ugly. It's limited because every chromosome has this complex array of nearly neutral and deleterious mutations. And the reason why they are called nearly neutral is because they're very, very slightly deleterious, but yet still unselectable. And so they're subject to genetic drift and they spread, they degenerate. So for you to say that these compensating mutations, compensatory mutations can counterbalance the damage. Well, how's that the fact when the entire population as a whole has this complex array of, of these deleterious mutations, uh, Snake? Well, uh, I mean, Kimura and Kondrashov have produced calculations that show that um, a certain amount of uh, beneficial mutations can effectively outweigh the deleterious ones and you need a very small amount um but um which paper so did they show that in um let me find kondrashov muller's ratchet under apostatic selection and the kimura paper i mean it's the one sanford cites i forget what it's called so uh, he said he said beneficial mutations will be able to counterbalance the damage done by the nearly neutral mutations? It, um, he said that epistasis can effectively halt it. So epistasis, I guess for the audience sake, what do you mean by synergistic epistasis? Basically these mutations accumulate, they're deleterious, but eventually they start amplifying each other's effects. And so selection is able to see the most degenerate essentially, and then remove them from the equation. Is, is that what you mean by synergistic epistasis? Yeah. And it's not the only selective pressure. So there's other things. There's recombination, which um, I don't know if I mentioned, I meant to mention it. Yeah. That is... I got that right uh, now. A driver of diversity. So mutation isn't a driver of evolution. It's a driver of diversity. You got to combine that with selection. But mutation isn't the only driver of diversity either. So recombination, which itself um, helps get rid of um, mutations, uh, deleterious mutations. It also helps with the synergistic epistasis. Um, well, let's, but, let's, yes. well so, let's deal with so each other time. We have synergistic, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going back to where I started. Okay. Uh, okay. Synergistic epistasis, basically, it can get rid of a lot of this deleterious stuff. So when you add that to other forms of selection, um, I'm just wondering where is the math that's saying that that's not possible? Okay, so let's let's start right at the beginning. Firstly, again, I just want to point out the fact that, you know, we, we have these evolutionary population geneticists that agree they're pointing out that all mutations are deleterious and it is not all no well the quote that i had was i'll pull it up again so it's it's going to depend on your assumptions of junk dna uh, junk dna as well because a lot of your uh, evolutionary population geneticists they're assuming that the vast majority of the genome is junk you know i've heard some say well about 10 percent functional 90 percent is junk. And so most of your neutral mutations are therefore hitting junk regions and they're not really doing any harm. But even if, and it's not just creationists that have pointed this out, and there's a lot of points on the table. So let me just try and address a few and, and then uh, you take your time. Even if the mutation rate was one to five per generation, as in the genomes only, let's say 5% functional, 
that's still roughly five deleterious mutations that are accumulating every single generation. And that means even the most fit individuals are still going to be more mutant than their parents and their grandparents. So if the genome's 80% functional, 50% functional, well, then that's 50 deleterious mutations, 80% deleterious mutations. And so I'd like to point out that it's kind of arbitrary to even ask who is the most mutant since the entire, I think this goes back to the fact that the entire population has accumulated mutations from previous generations. And so if the entire population is multiply mutant, let's deal with synergistic epistasis for now. Basically, if we have lots of mutations that are deleterious, these deleterious mutations accumulate and they amplify each other's deleterious effects. And so now we have a level of degeneration that's so intense that selection is, is now more efficient. But think about it logically. You introduce synergistic epistasis and now you have a, <laughs> a population of let's say seven to eight billion people, everybody's multiply mutant. And now we have some that are slightly more mutant than other mutants because the effects are being amplified. And so selections drives a subpopulation into extinction, removes them from the equation. Again, isn't that only going to slow down the degeneration since the individuals that have not been removed from the equation through synergistic epistasis, they are still more mutant than the generation before it. And so mutations still accumulate from generation to generation. Does that make sense, Snake? And, and feel free to speak to those points a little bit. Yeah, so we... Uh, the population being mutant isn't actually a problem. In fact, it's assumed that every gene is a mutant. Um, so we get rid of the worst of the worst with a lot with things like a synergistic epistasis makes um, negative selection um, more active on certain mixtures of mutations. So we get rid of the worst of the worst, but there's still a lot of other forms of selection um, left to get rid of what's left, which is just slightly deleterious effects. So, and that's been modeled and been, and a small amount of beneficial mutations will override the majority of um, deleterious mutations. And one of the reasons is because they don't have fixed effects. So if mutation A is deleterious, then, um, but mutation B is also deleterious, but sometimes A plus B is beneficial. That's just the way it works. Sometimes there was, um, there was a flu mutation experiment done, um, by, and it was the exact same, um, uh, uh, effect that I just described. So like mutation A, I forget what it's called, but it was, it, there was a mutation they were studying in it and it hit, hit the fitness very hard. And, um, but there was another mutation that they saw that popped up that when it was combined with mutation A, that was really unhealthy for the flu. It then had greater fitness than the original flu that they began studying. If I could, is this partly what you mean by compensatory mutations 
where you have mutation A is deleterious, mutation B is deleterious, but mutation A and B together creates a benefit or a compensation to the overall loss. Can you define your terms a little bit? Is that what you mean by compensatory mutations? Or if not, what do you mean exactly by that term? Um, well, it, it in that context, yeah. So the okay. mutation effect is context dependent. So you can have a compensatory mutation, which is literally a fix to like a broken gene. Or you can have a compensatory mutation that just interacts with another gene in a certain would way. Would that be that like a back mutation? So would a back mutation be a, a, a mutation that, that compensates? Yeah, but that's much more rare than a general compensatory mutation that, okay. uh, that uh, fixes it in some other way. So, so if, for example, like one mutation um, decreases the secretion of some chemical but another mutation amplifies it that right. would be compensatory but isn't that example of a compensatory mutation isn't that a beneficial mutation then oh yeah okay well, but the problem in general is your beneficial mutations your compensatory mutations are rare lenski's experiment demonstrated that they're about one in a million and I, for sake of argument, I can give you a few truly beneficial mutations, but there's plenty of literature out there anyways, demonstrating that a lot of these beneficial mutations pop up and they're reductive. And so what you have here basically is your entire genome being hit at all sorts of nucleotide sites with these nearly neutral mutations. And then you've got a few rare beneficial mutations arising and therefore these mutations are only going to increase fitness in a very isolated manner. And so these increases in fitness you're talking about, let's say you've got, as you pointed out, mutation A, deleterious, mutation B, deleterious, but both of them side by side is, is some kind of benefit. Well, that's just going to be a very localized increase in fitness. But overall, what do you have? Well, you, we have what we see in Lenski's experiment is we have shrinking functional genome sizes where you've got a few nucleotide sites that are improved, but then you still have this great multitude of sites being degraded. And so where is the absolute compensation? Where is compensation that's not just localized snake would be my question. Where is the universal compensation? As in, I want you to address what I believe is the key issue, which would be a net gain versus net loss. Go ahead. Uh, so a net would be an accumulation of individual circumstances. So um, what that's not taking into account is that there aren't fixed effects. So epistasis effects wouldn't be counted necessarily as a beneficial mutation in these numbers because uh, it's context dependent. So it it could be deleterious in one person and beneficial in another person and so it's it's kind of a numbers game so there's um what's the experiment it was another flu i think um they that basically it the average fitness of the population it was a bacteriophage um 
they overloaded it with mutagens. So they, they mutated every single possible uh, genome or uh, space in the genome that they could. And it still survived. The average fitness declined, but the maximum fitness increased. So there were some individuals in the population that were created, a small number, that were actually more fit than the original, even though most of the ones that were produced were less fit. So that's what Kimura is talking about when he says bottlenecks will actually um, fix this. So if you have a bottleneck to that population, all of the average fitness ones are cut out and now you have the minority of them where they used to be in the minority now the majority are now um higher ma maximum and average fitness if you apply a bottleneck well, to that okay but let's let's take the human population for example seven to eight billion people are you trying to say to solve this problem of, of genetic degeneration which i'd like to just read a, a couple quotes and get your thoughts Kondrashov, for example in his paper contamination of the genome by very slightly deleterious mutations that's what i'm talking about here why have we not died 100 times over and he says mm -hmm. i interpret the results in terms of the whole genome and show in agreement with Tachita, that very slightly deleterious mutations can cause too high of a mutation load, and it acts like a, a time bomb. But to corroborate that, we have him pointing out that in the average human genotype, over 100 genes are dysfunctional or altogether missing, and over 1,000 genes are substantially impaired. And here's the last quote I wanna go over. It has to do with Higgins and Lynch, and they talk about how, actually, this one's just Michael Lynch. He says, in the United States, the incidences of a variety of afflictions, including autism, male infertility, asthma, immune system disorders, diabetes, all of these mutation-related diseases are on the rise. A lot of it has to do with epigenetic and, and environment, I understand. So we have these population gene geneticists that are acknowledging that Mutations are accumulating in the, in the human population, in the human genome. Diseases are skyrocketing. Cancers are skyrocketing. So are you saying that basically the human population now at 7 to 8 billion needs to experience this massive population reducing bottleneck in order to save the day? Uh, if you're suggesting some kind of eugenics program, not I'm not suggesting <laughs> I'm, I'm that just at saying, all. Uh, okay, so but, what would uh, save so, okay, the day then? So, so this whole thing does require selection, but right. it's not genetic entropy unless it's inevitable. So if it's if it's just humans who are accumulating these things because they don't have selection anymore, then sure that's not a um, a problem for the idea of evolution. It is a problem for us. Um, but this isn't happening universally. So um, it may be the case that our medical technology can keep up with the mutations. Like our technology is the comp compensation. So if we're, I don't know, if, if our skin starts falling off, but we invent a lotion that stops it, you know, it's not a problem. Um, but at some point, if it gets too bad, there will be a mass dying and a bottleneck and like i was talking about with the uh the bacteriophage there will be certain individuals that due to recombination um due to their synergistic ep epistasis 
Um, and due to getting lucky by inheriting some of the beneficial mutations, there are going to be some individuals who are on not suffering the same mutations as everyone else in the population. They'll go on and kind of the whole cycle will restart again. So um, unless the population's like under a thousand, which in which case mutational meltdown is a problem, um, but Again, it's not genetic entropy unless it's inevitable in all cases. Um, I don't know if you uh, muted or not, but right, I was muted. I Sorry, can keep going. <laughs> so, I'll, I'll reiterate what I'll I was keep saying. Talking. I was talking to myself. So, yeah. Um, I could point to a number. I want to stick with humans for now, but I could point to a number of isolated cases of what I call microgenetic entropy, where we've got these isolated butterfly populations, they've degenerated significantly, uh, polar bears, cheetahs, your hominin, uh, hominid fossil record, you could say with Neanderthals, hobbit, floresiensis, erectus, mammoth populations have experienced mutational meltdown. Now, these are examples of small inbred populations where genetic right. degeneration accelerates, these deleterious mutations that are in recessive form come to the forefront and lead to rapid genetic meltdown. Now, in a large population, though, one could say, and as you evolutionists love, micro versus macro, <laughs> we've got macro genetic entropy where as more mutations accumulate, your 100 new mutations per person per generation, we now have over time more recessive spots in the genome where we now have what? More homozygous genetic loci. We've got the potential for more deleterious recessive mutations to come to the forefront. And so it may take a longer time with larger populations, but that noise is still there. As a matter of fact, that noise is worse in larger populations. And so a larger population is going to take longer, but to answer your, your main point is it is inevitable because let's say we've got seven to 8 billion people on the planet. If you were to, not through eugenics, but let's just say selection was intense and it was able to remove the most mutant. Because remember, the problem is your low impacts. The fact that every generation is going to be slightly worse than your previous generation. And so selection, for sake of argument, could remove 50% of the worst mutants, since we're all multiply mutant. And so now you're left with, let's say, four to five, let's say four billion people. Has that solved the problem with this intense selection? No, because you have four billion people, although you've removed your most mutants, you're still left with four billion people that are more mutant than the generation before it. And so I would argue, yes, it is inevitable, but there are means where degeneration can be slowed, but it can never be, even if you had this massive population bottleneck that reduced the population to 10,000. Well, there's an example with your cheetahs, they're down to 7,000 and in conservationists are incredibly worried about them. Their sperms uh, degenerate. They got all these deleterious mutations and diseases that have been manifested. I don't see how that's, you, you, now you're just left with a, a, a population that's small and now they're going to be inbred until they, they grow in numbers. 
And so I guess basically I just don't see how the mechanisms you've proposed so far are going to solve the problem. Here's the last thing I'll say, synergistic epistasis. I'm just looking at my notes. I want to address everything before we move on. Synergistic epistasis is just going to speed up the degeneration process since, again, everybody's multiply mutant. And now you have, let's say, this subgroup where their deleterious effects are amplified because you have all of these epistatic interactions going on. Okay, so selection removes that group from the equation, but everybody else is still mutant. And so the problem persists, is my point. Go ahead. So epistasis would just get rid of the worst mutants. So then you have um, stuff that's left over that's, you know, maybe every once in a while you purge it and it's the car is still rusty, but it's not falling apart. So um, the accumulation is kind of a misnomer because they don't have fixed effects. If one generation accumulates, you know, four or five deleterious mutations, the next generation of mutations might have a good effect on that. And so basically, like, you would be looking at something like over a long period of time, you know, people might have um, bad knees, but their their eyesight gets better overall. So it's the deleterious effects kind of migrate in that in that way because while you're accumulating more you're also having those ones from a couple generations back getting fixed and compensated for at the same time so it the effect of a of a mutation or a gene does not stay stable over time and this is one of the things that sanford doesn't account for um and certain model and certain other models do um and i i should explain Kondrashov's um why haven't we died a hundred times over a little bit more um his, his he did a model that said that selected selection working on mutations independently has too high a mutation load um and so he considered several models synergistic epistasis was one of those ones that saved the populations we don't know for sure if that math is exactly modeling reality but it it can mathematically overcome it um well, have but you... it's it's called a paradox because some of the math is hard to do but in reality we don't see what some of the very simple math is trying to say have you read the paper because Dr. Sanford's resume is available. He's got, I believe, over 140 publications. He's published numerous times in the Secular Journal, papers that have been read by over 10,000 scientists with no serious critique, at least in the secular literature, using Mendel's program. And so I've got a whole slew of them in my book, in my presentations. Here's just one specifically from a Secular Journal. And it's titled Mendel's Accountant, a Biologically Realistic Forward-Time Population Genetics Program. And in these papers, they talk about all the different parameters. They talk about in detail um, how you can set realistic conditions, unrealistic conditions, this amount of selection, this amount of beneficial mutations. Uh, they account for recombination. And you know these papers are published, and I don't see any serious critiques of them other than in 
some blogs or maybe some YouTube videos somewhere out there by some evolutionists. And so I guess my question is, where's the real serious critiques then of these thousands of numerical simulations that have been done and they've looked at beneficial mutations. They've looked at super beneficial mutations. They've looked at synergistic epistasis. They've looked at all types of mutation count mechanisms and genetic degeneration is always inevitable, even at the National Institute for Health that Dr. John Sanford spoke at, clearly not a young earth creationist organization, in his hour and a half lecture, he went through all of these numbers of papers, some um, through a th through non-secular journals, others through secular journals, basically backing up what I'm saying here, that these mechanisms, they've been analyzed and, and they've been, been falsified. So I, I guess basically my question to you is, have you read any of these papers on Mendel's accountant and where are the real serious critiques of them, including your H1N1 paper as well, which is published in, in a secular journal? Go ahead. Well, like I said, it was published in a computing journal, not a biology journal. So the one you just brought up, the Biologically Realistic Forward Time Population Genetics Program, right? Right. Uh, that's published in Scalable Computing. Um, and so they're not looking at any biologically realistic constraints. They're just looking at, does your program work? Like, well, and does it, it shut, does it crash the computer or whatever, you know? Well, what about the papers that deal with things like selection, beneficial okay. mutation, synergistic epistasis? Yeah, so the synergistic epistasis one I know is not published in any secular journal. Um, and it specifically sets uh, beneficial mutations to zero and, and restricts the population to 1,000. So that's the dangerous range for inbreeding and... Is that, the waiting, is that the waiting time problem paper or the synergistic epistasis one? That's the synergistic epistasis. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, even without going into the details on, on let's just say, the synergistic epistasis paper, I think it just goes back to logic on that, which I said earlier. It's where you've got, let's say, even very strong synergistic epistasis. How in the world is it going to curb deleterious mutation accumulation? Logically, it would accelerate it because you just have subgroups, apparently, where the, the deleterious mutations that they've accumulated, they are amplified and now selection's more efficient and removes that group from the equation. Okay, so now you have that group that's just experienced rapid extinction and you're left with everybody else that still has a lot of... See, selection's limited because it can't remove every single person on the planet can't remove all 7 billion. I should say this for clarifying question, a clarifying question, Snake. So do you look at the reason for the citations that I've provided with genetic degeneration and the increases in uh, your genetic related diseases in the human population that Michael Lynch talks about, Kondrashov, Kitely, so on and so forth? Do you look at that as, as being, it doesn't sound like you're denying it, but do you look to relax, relax selection? as being an explanation for human genetic degeneration, Taylor? And gentlemen, I'm just going to jump in here really quick just to let you guys know within the last 10 minutes of the open discussion, um, it's been it's been an enthralling discussion. So just let you guys let me know about we're in the last 10 minutes. Okay, let me say this. Before you uh, yeah. respond, Taylor, I'll be listening. I got to run away from the computer for about 30 seconds. 
But I'll give you the last word on this specific topic of compensatory mutations and synergistic epistasis and whatnot. And then I'd really like to move into, because time is flying by, I'm looking at everything I've written down. I'd love to talk about uh, synonymous mutations as they apply to genetic entropy as well. So feel free, take your time to respond to what I said. I'll be listening. Um, so... Yeah, that's certainly a possible explanation as relaxed selection is bad for mutation accumulation. And as far as selection goes, no one proposes that any form of selection can purge all mutations. It is a balance where you're constantly accruing more mutations and you, ne you never have a perfect genome. You always have some problems. Everyone's got a, you know, a thing, you know, you got a mole on your back or you got bad knees or bad eyes. Um, and But your kids might not have those problems because you're recombining your genes with whoever you're, you know, whoever you're getting nasty with. But um, so epistasis only removes the worst of the worst. And then there's other forms that deal with what's left. But again, it's there's no proposed mechanism that says this selection sweep will get rid of all deleterious mutations and you'll have a perfect genome. That's not a thing. Um, so the problem is it's called the, um, Kondrashov calls it a paradox because while some of the math uh, suggests that there's a problem with accumulating mutations there is math that contradicts that solves that but um he calls it a paradox because um in reality in real populations we don't see the inevitable degeneration in fact we see the opposite in many cases which shouldn't be possible if um genetic entropy was true um, okay let, so you said something there that I've got in my notes, too, that you've brought up that we haven't touched on. Okay, so um, recombination, for example. Um, I remember when I debated Dr. Stefan Frello a few years ago, his main mechanism to solve genetic degeneration is recombination as well. But the issue I have with that is, yes, recombination can break a lot of these deleterious alleles up. And we can get new chromosomal combinations that can be beneficial. Even from our starting point, created heterozygosity, we would. And one thing I want to say, too, because I, I think what's being ignored here as well is fixation. And right now, we exist in a population that's 7 to 8 billion. So fixation is rare. Okay. But you do have just all of these deleterious mutations that, that are floating around. If it's a smaller population, you've got rapid fixation. And in general, over a long enough period of time, your per generation rate will equal a, a fixation rate. But in these smaller populations, let's say you did have a bottleneck, you would have faster rates of fixation and uh, fixation speeds up the issue. But when it comes to recombination, although recombination can break up a lot of these deleterious alleles, it seems to be for the most part, other than when we look to gene conversion, but recombination 
appears to occur mostly between genes rather than between nucleotides. Gene conversion is interesting because it looks like it can break up your single nucleotides. But recombination itself would tell us that within any local gene sequence, for the most part, there's basically no, no recombination. And this goes back to what some have dubbed as being Muller's ratchet, okay? And so what I'm trying to say is if we have all these good mutations and then we've got all these harmful mutations, these slightly deleterious mutations that have accumulated, okay? But you've got these bad mutations linked with maybe a, a couple rare good mutations, but they can't be separated because of the limitations of recombination. So you got these massive linkage blocks, you know, some 10,000, 30,000 letters long. And since you don't really have much recombination going on within those genes to mm -hmm. break up those deleterious alleles, then all we get is those linkage blocks becoming worse and worse over time where these linkage groups are reducing in fitness continuously even though you might have recombination, again, I don't think it's addressing the key issue. And the key issue has to do with counterbalance, not localized increases in fitness or, you know, a localized example of a beneficial mutation where you get this single desirable mutation at this nucleotide site. Everywhere else is still degenerating. Here's, here's the last thing I want to say. A lot of this is technical for the audience sake. If I apply it to a car, and you mentioned this earlier in terms of an, an analogy. I have a car, get it right off the, you know, the assembly line. It's working great. That car is not going to last forever. It's going to accumulate rust. That rust is mostly going to accumulate unnoticeably. Now, if I'm good with my car and I'm doing the right things, I should be doing oil changes regularly, changing the tires when the treading is low, changing the wiper blades, not driving on empty all the time, you know, driving it responsibly. But regardless, even though I have these localized improvements based on the way I, I treat the car, it's still going to rust out over time. And I find, here's the last thing I'll say, Taylor, because I know you're dying to <laughs> refute me here, but recombination, synergistic epistasis, compensatory mutations, it's all just localized examples of improvement but universally it's still overall degeneration. So I said a lot there, go ahead, take your time. Uh, so yeah, recombination can straight up just get rid of the worst ones. Um, but over millions of people, you're going to have some children who have combinations and recombinations that would only carry like the fresh mutations. So that's how you can look at it is they have combinations that only carry the, the freshest of mutations. So they're getting rid of the old ones that have accumulated. They're getting new ones, but they're also getting rid of the old ones. So um, there's, a, there's a, a study too I mentioned. It's quantifying the threat of extinction from Muller's Ratchet in the diploid Amazon Molly. They have, um, they're non-recombining. So they actually solved mathematically why that how they can one possibility of how they're surviving and not having mutational meltdown that was solved with compensatory mutations um 
So it's not just recombination. It's not just epistasis. It's not just compensatory mutations. They're all acting together, and together it creates a universal effect. And like the example with the uh, salmonella bacteria that actually, due to compensatory mutations, ended up more fit than they started with, this is a uh, an actual... This is why they call it a paradox, because we actually observe that these populations are not uh, suffering from the effects of mutation accumulation. In fact, they're getting better in a lot of circumstances, and that is a preclusionary fact to genetic entropy. But, it again, to me, it seems like we're not necessarily dealing here with the low impact mutations that are accumulating in here. This goes back to earlier relaxed selection in the human population where because of relaxed selection, we in, in humans, for example, more high impact mutations are making their way into the next generations, right? In the wild, you have a zebra that's born with a big mutation. Let's say one leg shorter than the others. Well, selection is going to remove that mutant from the equation because the lion is going to seek out the, the mutant zebra first. He's going to be dinner. But if that same mutation occurred in humans, well, because of relaxed selection, we take care of each other. Medical advancements, improvements, you know, you're talking about that earlier. Okay, fine. That high impact mutant thrives, survives, still has kids. But again, it's not the issue. The issue is the low impact mutations, those that are un unselectable, those that selection can't see. And you know, you've mentioned some mathematical models. I would definitely like to see those. But from my understanding, what's been proposed by people like Kondrashov, Lynch, uh, Kitely is for one, relaxed selection. Well, you know, humans are degenerating because of relaxed selection. I feel it ignores the uh, low impact mutation, synergistic epistasis, as you've talked about. But again, I feel that ignores the bigger picture. It ignores the low impact mutations. Um, real examples, rather than just hypotheticals, Lenski's experiment. You know, you, you pointed out earlier in rebuttal, uh, and feel free to respond, that, well, you know, they're doing just fine with these localized increases in fitness, but they're losing genes. They've shrunk in functional genome sizes. They're worse off than their ancestors. So how do you see that as something that has universally increased total functionality? Yeah, in that very narrow artificial environment, maybe they're doing okay. But the second they're, uh, they move to another environment, I mean, that's it. They've degenerated, they've lost so many genes and those genes that have been lost, they're not going to come back and so this is an example of reductive evolution. So I, I would argue we see genomic decay even in bacteria. That's a real-time example, not just hypotheticals, not just stories. Um, I'm not sure if I addressed your point there. there. There's quite a few there, but go ahead. Feel free to respond. Well, they're not uh, necessarily worse off. The Lenski bacteria are perfectly adapted for their environment. But other the other bacteria I've mentioned several times, it was a salmonella experiment. Um, let me see if I can uh, compensatory adaptation to the deleterious effect of antibiotic resistance in Salmonella ty typhimurium. Um, 
what's the benefit there? So what it goes through the fitness peaks and valleys uh, effect that I talked about. So we observe low impact fitness hits often to mutations, and then we witness compensation where then the fitness goes back up and it goes up and it goes down. And yeah, but how and, common is the compensation is the point I've been making. It's not very, it's pretty rare, like a well, beneficial. It, it's not like it's always, see, we've got all, we just got, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. It's common enough to observe it in real time in populations. Well, we've observed so-called beneficial, I'd argue they're reductive and functionally and, compromise it, but nonetheless, and, and um, once he's experiment, it was one in a million. That's pretty rare, especially when every generation well, you're, you, go ahead. I mean, the, the bacteria um, produce millions of, the, of each other per day, but, um, well, what's the so beneficial it, mutation if, rate in humans then? Even if there's a, like a 10 to 1 um, ratio of deleterious to compensatory, there's 10 to 1 compensatories that can fix any single deleterious. So if there are fewer compensatory mutations per deleterious one, it each single compensatory mutation is able to fix multiple uh, or is... Has the probability to fix multiples of them have the probability to fix the single deleterious that we're looking at. And we and we observe this experimentally that it does happen with enough frequency. Okay, but assuming what deleterious mutation rate? One per generation, 10, 50, 100. What's this math based on? Well, it's with this experiment, it's not uh math it's not a model or a program it's literally just breeding bacteria and they're actually getting more fit so right, the the um the mutation that which caused antibiotic resistance um lowered its fitness in several areas but praise. then subsequent you got some background noise praise yeah subsequent subsequent mutations uh ameliorated those costs and and they kept the antibiotic resistance so the damage done by the the antibiotic resistance mutation was compensated for by um, it says at least thirty five different amino acid substitutions. Um, but what I've seen from a lot of these mathematical models and explanations is, firstly, there's population geneticists that have pointed out that one mutation per generation could be too much. And that's what a lot of these mathematical assumptions or models are assuming yeah. is one mutation, maybe five. And this is where it gets into a whole nother conversation. I think we need to have on this podcast is what amount of the genome is functional. Cause if the genome is, that let's say 80% functional and 80 of these mutations are deleterious, well then there's no compensation. <laughs> that's going to counterbalance that damage. If you're dealing with one that's deleterious or two or three, I would say it's still a problem. But that, and correct well, me if I'm wrong, that is what these mathematical models are based off of. Go ahead. Yeah. So what's getting compensated for is what what's left, the least um, deleterious mutations and the deleterious mutations that survived other forms of selection. Um, and one per generation would be too much if we didn't have all those forms of selection and if we assume fixed fitness effects. So 
in that salmonella Can you define fitness of fats? Are you just saying there's relative fitness in the population? Uh, no. So in the in the salmonella experiment, there was a mutation, right, uh, which gave them antibiotic resistance. It still has that mutation, but it doesn't have the same effect as it um, originally had because now it has um, epistatic effects with okay, other so, mutations. Okay, so one mutation in the genome that was pre-existing is interacting with this new mutation that you're saying is beneficial. And so it's having a positive effect, a compensating effect, basically. Yeah. Okay. So again, if, and my major problem with this is increasing fitness in the absolute sense, not just these localized examples, a narrow increase in fitness, that is where the issue lies because these isolated examples of compensation or rare beneficial mutation. You know, you mentioned sickle cell anemia. I originally mentioned sickle cell anemia, but that you, you commented on it. That is an example of, and I know Prey said there's only five minutes left. So let me say this, and I do want to get into the synonymous mutations. Um, because it does come down to how functional is is the genome. But nonetheless, something like sickle cell anemia, I mean, it has a localized benefit. It has a very um, narrow advantage, one could say. But nonetheless, yeah, but it that is... can that can happen to each um, each effect that's damaging enough. So most of it's going to be neutral and not selectable, but some effects are going to break through the haze of nearly neutrals, and those are uh, more likely to be compensated for. So you basically are saying there's a trade-off then with your compensating mutations and your low-impact mutations that are truly deleterious? There, there can be, but um, in this specific example, and, and there was a flu example as well, where um, they took a temporary fitness hit, but then with more mutations accumulating, they actually got more fit than they were event uh, originally. Do we see this in humans? Because humans, every single generation, would you, would you, how would you answer the question, are humans presently getting better? Or would you agree with people like Lynch that would say that, you know, we're losing one to 5% fitness per generation? Um, it depends how you're measuring fitness, but um, sure, I can concede that, but it doesn't actually help the case of genetic entropy because genetic entropy needs to be universal and we're actually seeing the opposite of genetic entropy in many populations which is preclusionary well, yeah but it looks like your examples correct me if i'm wrong are viruses and bacteria where do we see this in the wild with higher longer lived well, the, mammals like elephants humans whales lions. the amazon molly the the non-recombining fish that i talked about um does not go through genetic entropy and they quantified that. Um, but the reason. Well, send me that paper and, about and, the fish. I'd like to see that. Yeah. And but, mice, mice and other model organisms is because they have a fast generation time. We can't study humans like that because the scientists studying it will be dead by the next generation. Well, I just put out a 17 page article because we are running low where I, it's literally titled 
and it is available on the website. Can simple organisms overcome genetic entropy? I get into mice, as you just brought up. I get into bacteria. So maybe we can have a part two, since as we are uh, winding down, yeah. I do I do want to praise. Give us one uh, five more minutes because <laughs> I'm looking at my notes here. Compensatory mutations, Mendel's accountant, beneficial mutations, synergistic epistasis. We've basically discussed every point except for synonymous mutations. And so I would argue, and I'd be curious as to your thoughts, uh, Snake, is, and for the audience sake, basically what we're talking about here is basic genetics, where we've got 20 amino acids and four different DNA letters, right? A, T, C, G. So what we find is different languages in the cell, multiple overlapping codes. But when it comes to proteins, coding for proteins specifically, three different DNA letters code for a single unit of a protein, right? An amino acid. And so what we actually find, and this is what Snake was talking about earlier, is we find redundancy in DNA when coding for a protein. You'll oftentimes see it described as third position codon degeneracy, I believe it is. And so we've got this wobble position three that is redundant. And so if you were to change that, it's not going to affect the protein. And so some would say it's absolutely neutral. But what we're actually finding is that wobble position three, your third position codon variation, it's not simply just redundant. It's not simply just tolerating error. But, and there's uh, secular papers describing the fact that the cell is actually using these different redundant elements to slow and speed processes in the cell. So we have just amazing levels of information compression into every letter of DNA. And so, yeah, those can be hit with a mutation. And although it doesn't affect the protein, I would argue that it's still slightly deleterious because those redundant elements are used to slow and speed the, the uh, processes in the cell. And so if it's hit with a mutation, that speed changes and it could change negatively. Not to mention yeah, redundancy. I'll say this and then go ahead. Redundancy is good design. And so more redundant elements in the genome that are hit with deleterious mutations leaves less redundant elements in the genome to be utilized as backup code or even... Um, much like a, a spare tire in the back of your car. Yeah, it's redundant. You got four tires. Once you use it, I know the evolutionists love uh, the car analogies. Once you use it, well, that's it. There's no other spare tire. Now you, you better not get another flat. And so redundancy is important. Go ahead, uh, Taylor. What, what are your thoughts on that? So, I mean, there there are some very niche reasons why there's like weak selection for certain codon bias, uh, like for CG tags for example um their uh, viruses get noticed by the cell so they're actually selected against having that um but overall the it, the selection is really weak and the distribution of codon bias is basically random so the majority of the synonymous mutations are going to be just uh just uh, the same if they're being translated it's going to result in the same protein um okay 
So how um, much time do we have left? Yeah, let's do this. Praise, since we've are already we, gone we... over on, on the discussion. Oh, yeah, we are way over. Yeah, let, let, let's <laughs> jump into close. Let's jump into closings. I'll do my five minute because I started. <laughs> Snake can do his five minute. This has been comprehensive. We'll do some audience questions and then we'll uh, we'll wrap up the the podcast. Been a lot of fun. So okay, so praise. I get the first five minutes. Yep, you started. Okay, so e excellent discussion. You know, I've had a lot of fun here. It's been comprehensive. Praise. Let me know when I have a minute left if you could. And so essentially it comes down to whether or not these examples of localized improvements that I would say are going to save the day for genomes because deleterious mutation accumulation, my whole argument is that they put shelf lives on genomes. Okay, and this is actually amazing evidence from the Bible. We have profound biblical evidence for genetic entropy because the biblical account of, of the patriarchs and their ages pre and post flood that we read in the Bible actually reveals this classic gene genetic degeneration within humanity when you start with Adam and Eve. And so this is biblical. And when all the relevant data is plotted, all these populations show a classical decay curve that approaches zero, which is exactly what we see with your uh, low impact deleterious mutations that are accumulating. Now, here's the problem though. His arguments are basically like trying to remove rust one atom at a time, very occasionally. And Taylor, I mean, it's kind of tongue in cheek, but he keeps on saying that selection removes unselectable mutations. That doesn't even make any sense. That's the whole point is your low impact mutations, your slightly deleterious mutations are effectively neutral. They're only slightly deleterious to the point where selection can't see them. And so they're only subject to genetic drift. And that's the whole point of why it's just completely arbitrary to ask who is the most mutant because the entire population has accumulated mutations from previous generations. The population in general is multiply mutant. And yes, I agree, some may be less mutant than others, but they are mutant nonetheless because they have inherited mutations from their parents and grandparents. And so synergistic epistasis is actually only, only going to make the problem worse because you're just gonna get localized subgroups essentially that experience rapid extinction, but the whole population is still mutant. And so, no, you can't select unselectable mutations. And yet those are what? Low impact. They're deleterious. And so I appreciate it, Taylor. He gave some examples of very bad fitness declining mutations and then secondary mutations right? Compensatory mutations was a bulk of his argument that apparently make it slightly better than the terrible fitness <laughs> that pre-existed. And so again, what I've said in response this whole time is those types of um, compensating mutations, they're only slowing down the degeneration and they are not stopping the process. Okay, so these slightly deleterious mutations that are low impact, they are the problem. They accumulate unchecked 
they degenerate. Recombination isn't going to save the day because again, recombination is just going to do what your synergistic epistasis does, your rare beneficial mutations perhaps, is you may have a localized increase in fitness, but while the whole genome is degenerating and you may have some localized improvements at a few nucleotide sites, massive numbers are still being degraded. And so there's no positive trade-off. It's not sustainable. It results in exactly what we've seen in the E. coli experiments with shrinking functional genome sizes. Essentially what you're doing is you're just throwing out a ton of information from multiple nucleotide sites. And then you're trying to desperately replace all of that information loss with single desirable point mutations. It's not going to work. It's not going to save the day. And we see thousands of mutation-related diseases manifesting in the human population. There's a paper out there that talks about how just mammal mutation rates in general are all very high. How many billions of dollars has been spent studying the human genome? So yeah, we have more evidence for degeneration in the human genome than let's say other species in the wild that we haven't really studied. But the more we study those species in the wild, I predict, yeah, you're going to find evidence for disease, degeneration, because species with high mutation rates, long-lived complex organisms, they are going to be consistently more and more mutant. And that's why we have so many examples of what I call microgenetic entropy, the entire hominid fossil record, basically, or those in the human line. So your hominin fossil record, like Neanderthalensis, highly inbred suffered from a high genetic load, mammoth populations as well in the past. Your hobbit species was uh, suffered from reductive evolution. Homo naledi, Homo erectus. Again, we have ex localized examples today, butterfly populations. Because if you want to see a sneak preview into where we are going genetically as a species with genetic entropy, just look to what occurs with inbreeding. And yes, mutations accumulate and mutations add diversity because they're adding something that was not previously there. But the type of diversity that's being added is the type of diversity you get after copying out a book 200 times and you it's more diverse because you have all these typographical errors. Okay, or what about all of you know the, the dents and rust marks and scratches that accumulate on a car over, over time? Sure, it's more diverse but it's not diverse in a better way. Your book has descended into gibberish and your mutations that accumulate in a large population. Firstly, there's a lot of noise. Praise, how much time do I have? I think you're muted. Whoops. Um, I'm sorry, about you're, you're a minute over. So if you wanted to wrap it up. Okay, I'll wrap it up here. So um, <laughs> praise, you got to learn to click the unmute, but you're doing good. Um, so here's the last thing I'll say is one of our next discussions needs to be on junk DNA because a lot of the arguments put forth by Taylor in terms of the mathematical models do assume a mutation rate of one per generation, maybe five. But if you're 10 or more 
in terms of functionality, 10% or more, I'd argue that the genome is about 80% functional. That's 80 deleterious mutations. Then th these uh, deleterious mutations, they really do put shelf lives on genomes. And so here's the last thing I'll say. If species cannot persist for millions of years into the future, they definitely could not have persisted for millions of years into the past. And so the reason why species have not yet gone extinct is because biology is young. And I'll yield there. And to be fair, uh, praise, please give Taylor uh, equal time that I took. Absolutely, Taylor. Go ahead and take 20 if you need it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think you're muted too, uh, Taylor. Did you mute me? Or did I mute myself? I don't know. I, I muted you um, both before I started because I can't stand background noise. And you, you both obviously didn't notice. Go ahead. Yeah. You hear my my rustling notes. Um, all right. Now I just mixed my notes up. Okay. So, uh, yeah, where do I start? So I asked um, multiple times where the actual empirical data was for um genetic entropy, not just certain populations that have low selection, that have inbreeding issues. We know these are problems. We already, this is not synonymous with genetic entropy. Genetic entropy is much more strict than that. It has to be universal. There are um, preclusionary defeaters for this, such as the, um, the T7 bacteriophage I brought up, which was saturated with mutations. Average fitness went down, but maximum fitness went up, which means small amount of individuals were actually more fit because of mutations. Um, the majority of the population had bad mutations, and the bulk of the population fitness went down. That's fine, because if, it, if there's a numbers game, if the population's high enough, some combinations will end up being better than, um, than even the mutations you started off with and yes it is you do get more and more mutant over time evolution assumes this that we never considered that a problem um and that's fine because compensatory mutations are part of that mutation more and more mutant every generation they'll fix whatever's left over from the multiple uh selection processes that get rid of tons of bad mutations yes humans may be a population where selection is not sufficient um, but again, that is not evidence for, uh, genetic entropy as the concept that is inevitable, unstoppable degeneration of all genomes. Now, it seems that you, um, you mentioned something, a paper called something like, can simple organisms get over genetic entropy? And this to me seems to be, um, basically conceding the point where if you're moving on to this argument of okay well only complex organisms uh suffer from genetic entropy then that's kind of already conceding the point that some organisms are not affected by genetic entropy now you may want to just change the definition of genetic entropy as only applying to complex organisms that's fine but um i think that that does show that in general, there are examples of um, preclusionary processes in some organisms that are 
against genetic entropy that genetic entropy said was impossible. Okay, so they're adjusting the model. But uh, I'll just go over an, uh, the other couple examples I gave. Uh, the N1 influenza, it had um, mean fitness wild type. It was fit for its environment, as as you'd accept, as you'd expect. It's given, you know, a score of one for its fitness wild type. So it had H274Y mutation, big hit to its fitness. It was almost half as fit as before. And then, uh, I believe that this was a heterozygous um, combination with the R194G mutation together. The deleterious mutation plus this new mutation actually made the influenza more fit than the wild type. Same thing happened with Salmonella. It had a mutation which conferred it um, the advantage of antibiotic resistance. It was a trade-off. It was less fit in general because of this, it was less reproductive fitness. Um, then it went through a, another round of several mutations and it recovered that genetic fitness, reproductive fitness, and kept its resistance gene. So it had that original mutation for the fit for the resistance, and then it kept getting more and more mutant, and it actually got more fit. It got more traits, it got more functional, and and that and unlike Lensky, it was actually put back in wild type environment and it was more fit and it kept the benefits that originally it traded off. So what we observe in evolution is peaks and valleys of fitness. Um, but the, the fact that there is actually an increase in complexity, an increase in fitness would actually preclude the definition Sanford gave for genetic entropy. And so now the model is adjusting to maybe only apply to complex organisms, which of course are harder to study. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's the point that we're at is where we've shown that um, there is no actual empirical data um, backing up genetic entropy. It's only computer models. There's a mutational paradox where very simple math seems to indicate deleterious mutation accumulation is going to be a problem. There are multiple models that um, show that that can actually be um, overcome by multiple processes. We don't know exactly which one it is. If any of them are true, it could be any of them. It could be all of them. But it's a paradox because in reality, in populations, we don't see that. And for more complicated populations, we can look at mice, um, the Amazon Molly I brought up. Um, these are fast generation and the, the Molly is non-recombining, so it's at more of a risk. It still obeys the paradox where it's not going extinct. So there's, no, there's nothing that really precludes the idea of genetics being a self-regulating thing where it can handle, there's a mutation selection balance. Um, and there is preclusionary evidence for, um, for genetic entropy. And so 
I think that'll do it. All right. Thank you guys for those closing statements. It looks like the audience really enjoyed the discussion. Um, a lot of good reviews so far. So uh, that was a lot of fun. And uh, so we'll head into a few questions. Um, you have a few of them. So I think we could probably get through this if we hustle. So maybe keep between a one or two minute answer, you know, within that time frame, And we'll just uh, try to close out here. Yeah, take your time. I don't mind. <clears throat> I don't mind questions. Excellent. So our first question is from Echoing Erudite. Question for you, Donnie. Do we know how much longer humans last with genetic entropy before we start to go extinct? Good question. I think it's too difficult to put an exact number on because there's just so much going on in the genome. In turn, see, if we were not designed with what I described in the opening statement, these intricately designed DNA repair enzymes, we would have gone extinct after a few generations. We have a lot of DNA breaks, millions of DNA breaks. And yet these DNA repair enzymes fix the majority of them. Now many do get through three new mutations, I believe it is, per cell division. And so we would have gone extinct a long time ago if it weren't for these DNA repair enzymes. But every generation gets more and more mutant. I think there's just a lot of factors to consider. We, we know mutation accumulation puts shelf lives on genomes. We see what happens with smaller populations. Just look at Neanderthals, for example, Homo floresiensis, mammoths, high genetic load. With a large population like humans, seven to eight billion people, there's a lot of noise in the genome. And so one could say, you know, three to 400 generations. Most Christians would probably say Jesus will return by then. <laughs> so good question, though. I don't think an exact number can be put on it. Uh, appreciate it. Thank you so much, Donnie, for that detailed answer. If you want to respond to that, go ahead, Snake. Oh, mute. Snake, I think you're on mute. <laughs> Oh, he might have. Taylor, are you there? He might have stepped away for a bathroom. Break. Oh, I'm. Yep. Oh. Muted. No. Uh, go. Go ahead and just go to the next one. All right, Tanya Brown. For you, a question for you, Snake. If most mutations are deleterious, wouldn't the first simple cells have died before mutating enough compensatory mutations, especially before developing repair genes? Um. Well, like I said, it's a numbers game, so as long as you're able to keep replicating, some of the children are going to have uh, the good mutations. Some of them are going to, and a majority of them are going to have the bad ones, but it only matters if you can uh, keep going through the small number of um, well mutated children. Praise. Can you re, re say the question? I'll see if I want to yeah. say anything. But... If most mutations are deleterious, wouldn't the first simple cells have died before mutating enough compensatory mutations, especially before developing repair genes? Right. I would even ask the question today, would compensatory compensatory mutations reverse the effects of even, you know, 1% or 10% of all deleterious mutations today? 
because there is a lot of deleterious mutations that accumulate. And I would say you're going to need a lot of these more or less rare compensatory mutations to counterbalance the damage. If you want to go all the way back in time to your single-celled like ancestor that evolved into a multi-celled ancestor, into a fish, amphibian. I mean, once you get into your, you know, farm, right? Fish, amphibian, reptile, mammal. Once you get into your amphibian, amphibians to reptiles to mammals and higher, more complex organisms, that's where I would say the biggest issue is. Genetic entropy is a concept that was written for higher organisms, longer lived organisms with shorter generation times, faster mutation rates. But here's the last thing I'll say. And then Taylor gets the last word. Question was for him. Lenski's bacterial population uh, experiments. His bacterial populations have shrunk in functional genome size. They've experienced reductive evolution and they are degenerated. They are handicapped. So I would argue that even in bacteria that we could say, well, maybe uh, bacteria is one of the only organisms that can withstand. And again, I just wrote a 17 page article on it. I recommend people check it out for this debate specifically. And um, even bacteria are um, susceptible, it seems, to genomic decay, I yield. Go ahead, see. All right. So yeah, Lenski bacteria are not handicapped. They aren't losing any genes they need to survive. Their fitness is not actually going down. Um, they are not selecting for any of the mutations that happen to the genes that they don't need because it doesn't matter. Um, so back to the original question, uh, those, those first cells, taking your argument, they're simpler. So it, a, a mutation, um, deleterious mutations are less of a problem for the simpler organisms um, if we're going to take that argument that that it's more of a problem for more complex organisms thank you so much we'll do the next question so this is for usft by mark reed why do you refer to kayuma i'm not sure or kamira i'm sorry okay kamira. when kamira himself disagrees with stanford and has said that he is using his work incorrectly kimura has, from my understanding, has never said that Dr. Sanford's using <clears throat> his work incorrectly. Let me see. When is did Kimura pass away? Um, so, yeah, I, I'd like to see a citation of that. But Kimura, in uh, his work, Dr. Kimura, he put forth a model that, that shows how many low impact these, these nearly neutral mutations are accumulating. You got this massive no selection zone, but he did say, he did say in passing more so an, um, an assertion or a claim that adaptive substitutions or adaptive mutations, basically beneficial mutations should be able to counterbalance, counterbalance the damage. But that's it. He never gave any data to support it. What do we know today? Well, there's been a lot of research since Kimura. We know beneficial mutations occur, but they occur very infrequently. It's about one in a million. Okay. And when they do occur, they are still usually reductive and functionally compromising to the respective organism. 
And even when they do occur, they're often lost due to genetic noise because selection doesn't see them, especially in a large population, and therefore selection doesn't amplify them. This goes back to my opening statement where I talked about what's called selection interference, where you have so many traits segregating in a large population that they're basically working against the, uh, each other. And so selection is only able to amplify the best and remove the worst. And so the last thing I want to say is beneficial mutations almost never get fixed in populations. And if they do get fixed, Dr. Kevin Anderson in a debate on this channel with Jackson Wheat, he showed a paper, I believe it was from 2020. And you know, I've got my slideshows, of course, but this is a podcast debate. And so this paper talks about how the, the beneficial mutations observed in Lenski's bacterial populations, they're actually starting to die. <laughs> so, I mean, there's just so many problems with beneficial mutations that Kimura's statement or claim, it, it doesn't work. It's been falsified, basically. But he never gave any supporting evidence for that claim. And so it wasn't a misrepresentation, therefore. Anyways, uh, good question. I appreciate it. Go ahead, sneak a few and respond to that. Yeah, so uh, Kimura says that um, directly to Sanford, uh, this uh, is a quote from Kimura, the situation becomes quite different if slightly advantageous mutations occur at a constant rate independent of environmental conditions. In this case, the evolutionary rate can become enormously higher in a species with very large population size uh, than a, a po small population size. Um, contrary to observed pattern um so and basically i i just found this but i think this was um his response to sanford but it echoes something that he said in the paper which was very similar um which is basically that if you since since his model oversimplifies things which we have to do in genetics because it's very complicated. And he's just looking at uh, neutral selection. Um, that oversimplification doesn't mesh well with adding in the beneficial mutations. Um, and so if you add in the beneficials, there's runaway evolution like in the positive direction. So the beneficial, and, and that's assuming constant rate too, which is also not realistic. Um, so the, the beneficials were actually too good for realistic models, um, which is why he takes them out. But then Sanford bases his entire theory on this model that's not supposed to be used that way. <clears throat> so I guess as a last word, I looked it up. Motu Kimura, 1924 to 1994. So I'm highly skeptical that Kimura's ever said anything directly about dr sanford's claims dr sanford if i'm correct did say that he would suspect that kimura would have drawn on on the curve nearly neutral mutation curve or no uh, unselectable mutations uh, a very similar curve with beneficial mutations because if they are rare and even when they do happen, they're mostly reductive, context-dependent, uh, I understand. But when you actually look, see, a lot of times we got to look under the hood of the car to see what's really going on, right? And so when you look to the genotype 
rather than the phenotype with a lot of these mutations, that's where you realize, wow, this advantage, this adaptive episode was actually due to a loss or the breakdown of a pre-existing system or, you know, a promoter that's now unregulated, almost like keeping your light switch on all the time. And, you know, you, you can't turn it off kind of thing. Uh, or, you know, your, your alarm, your alarm clock breaks where it's just always on now. I mean, it's not really a benefit. It's, it's a breakdown of some kind. And so that's not going to counterbalance the damage. But Kimura did say adaptive mutations should essentially counterbalance this issue. But I think that this claim without evidence has really been refuted. It's really been falsified basically based on what we now know about beneficial mutations and, and what occurs on the genotype with, with a lot of, I'm not saying all of them, but with a lot of them. So I'll yield there. Thank you so much. SOT. We have a super chat. Let's see here. We, uh, it was up there <laughs> to find it, but he says, uh, welcome. Or he says, Hey everyone. He put his hand up. It was, um, Oh my gosh. It's gone now. Like what happened to Gmos? Somehow? Yes, Gmos. Yeah, he, he said he said hi everybody. So hello Gmos, appreciate the the support, brother. Yeah, Gmos, there it is. I found it. Okay. Very good. Let's go on to the next question from Centurion 737. For you snake, if mutations are reductive and harmful and diseases are mutation, why do we still have disease when you claim they are being removed from the human genome? Um, I explained uh, a few times that it doesn't review it doesn't remove all diseases. It will only remove just enough basically to keep you from to keep you at that uh, mutation selection balance. So it's not purifying your whole genome to make you a perfect being. Removes enough so that you're not dying or not um, failing to produce children, but things like um, bad knees, bad eyes, um, you know, whatever else you, you got dry skin, um, little things like that that you can survive with, it is not going to get uh, taken out. Go ahead, SFT, you're going to respond to that. You can move on to the next. So we have another one from Mark Reed coming at you. <laughs> I wouldn't expect you. any less from my boy, Mark. <laughs> he says, you claim Mendel's account has been published in journals. Has it been published in peer-reviewed peer genetics journals? And has genetic entropy been accepted by scientific consensus? Appreciate the question, Mark. Also looking forward to Mark's upcoming debate with Paul Price. That's going to be a lot of fun. So one that comes to mind, and I've got a ton in my slides here listed. Um, there's quite a few. Now, what you have to do is, is sort through ones that are um, published in secular journals and others that are through a symposium or even in... Um, creationist journals but there's a solid mix one that comes to mind i think that directly answers this question was um dr sanford and uh dr carter published in theoretical biology 
and medical modeling. So I believe he was looking for a paper published in the peer-reviewed journals that have to do with either biology or genetics. So the name of this one, Snake has a problem with this one, but I mean, in, in the uh, discussion, I'd like to see an actual sophisticated critique, not just from some YouTube video or some angry blogger, <laughs> which by the way, the uh, arguments put forth earlier from Taylor were very similar to arguments put forth by Dr. Dan Stern Cardinal, Dr. Rob Carter, who was co-author of this paper, peer-reviewed in the secular journals, he responded on uh, CMI to these arguments. So the authors would disagree with those critiques, but it's called A New Look at an Old Virus, Patterns of Mutation Accumulation in the Human H1N1 Influenza Virus Since 1918. And so basically in this paper, what they discovered with the, was the H1N1 human version um, and Taylor disagrees with it and he'll have a chance to respond. But in a nutshell, the paper itself demonstrated that this uh, virus went from a red hot pandemic to a whimper to an extinction event in 90 years. Now we do have this, the swine flu versions now circulating, but that's different. Okay. And this was due to a linear accumulation of mutations. This is genetic entropy at work published in a secular journal. And um, the problem with the evolution is they can't really explain why the H1N1 virus is extinct in, in humans. Okay. And so, so basically, and I'll wrap it up with this, you could read the paper, it's technical, but in a nutshell, the virus started off more human in its codon usage, but it randomized over time. So it ended up more random, randomized. And how we know this is because it became worse at interacting with human DNA over time. And so if it is using the wrong codons, that means it will be less efficient at replicating in human hosts. And so this is just a clear example of a decline in functionality. And it matches exactly with, with genetic entropy. And so I'll, I'll yield there. All right. Um, so yeah, they they failed to actually measure direct fitness, which was reproductive capacity. Um, and Dr. Dan actually asked Car Dr. Carter, um, and he and his reply was they didn't compute any growth methods, and their work was done only on the computer. Um, so with codon bias that you were just talking about that's pretty normal for a viral distribution. So, and I think Dan actually published a paper on that. Um, so that what, that's not a very good measure of their fitness. And the other measure of fitness was virulence, which virulence always tends to go down in a pandemic because it's not a good strategy to be very virulent when everyone's already infected. It's actually a better strategy to become less virulent. So, um, as the pandemic goes on, a less virulent uh, virus is actually going to be coming more fit. So uh, another flaw in the study was that they actually were comparing um, an avian origin flu with a human origin flu and conflating them. Uh, so they're, 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 they can't actually show... There is, was no direct measure of reproductive fitness 
and they can't show any um, causation between that and and well, they can't show a hit to fitness, but they can't show any causation between what they actually measured and the extinction. Okay, so <clears throat> last words, and I've got it pulled up here. It's a long response from Dr. Rob Carter and Dr. Sanford on this paper. Again, published in the peer-reviewed literature. It's my understanding Dr. Dan Stern Cardi now did not respond in any meaningful way in terms of the secular literature or anything like that. And so it's titled, I'm looking at it right now, and it's quite detailed. For, for sake of time, I'm not going to um, read through it, um, but it's called Responding to Supposed Refutation of Genetic Entropy from the Expert. Highly reckon, recommend that people check it out. But based on what I know, okay, is that codon bias declined consistently over time. And it's that's not consistent with adaptive evolution. I mean, it shows clearly that they got worse, not better at interacting with human DNA. And that would correlate to slower replication. And that means less lethal infections. The, 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 here, it's basic. The viruses became less lethal because they got worse, not better at doing their one and only job, which is replicating themselves. And so again, this went from a red hot pandemic to a whimper to an extinction event in 90 years and adaptive evolution does not cause extinctions. But if you want to see a direct response to arguments from uh, uh, Dr. Dr. Dan Stern Cardinal, but Dr. Carter and Dr. Sanford responding to him directly on this paper, check out responding to supposed refutations of genetic entropy from the experts I yield. If I could get sure, in real ahead. quick there. Um, yeah. So that that wasn't actually the results that they got. They they um, kind of extrapolate some some other things within non-peer-reviewed literature that is not actually published in the paper. So all they actually report in the paper is they document multiple extinction events um, and they report uh, the, the change in codon bias and they observe a continuous erosion of, um, oh, that's that's the codon bias, and and they um, observe um, accumulation of mutations. They don't actually report in this paper that it was caused, that the extinction was caused by these things, and um, so it and it could have been due to human vaccination. Um, and and you said they got less lethal. Well, lethal is lethality is not a measure of re replicative fitness. So, well, when it comes to the virus, if pathology or pathogenicity, if that is the correct way to define fitness with these viruses, and if it's not, parent, <laughs> sorry. Okay. So, so what's the appropriate way to define fitness in, in the H1N1 human virus? I mean, if it's getting worse at interacting with human DNA over time. How is this not an example of, and I'm, lo I'm looking at his article here and he's from the data he presented in response to Dr. Dancer and Cardinal, Rob Carter says, we were able to discern that the virus had been picking up about 14 mutations per year of circulation, accounting to over 1400 nucleotide changes. 
nearly 11% of the genome. We were also able to show that the genome was moving toward a state of maximum randomness. That's what I said, that it's, it's been randomized over time. You're saying that's consistent apparently, but it wasn't becoming better. Instead, the laws of thermodynamics were driving it toward a state of maximum entropy. And so this seems to be, um, this trend towards randomness was documented in the original paper. And Dr. Carter points out that it was reinforced with additional publications later. And he's got two uh, citations here. So I don't know. Go ahead. You want a final word on that one? Um, sure. Uh, so reproductive fitness is the measure of fitness. Um, it's, it's not always a good idea to um, give your hosts symptoms and especially not a good idea to kill the host because then your host dies, especially late in a pandemic. So sometimes you do want them to have symptoms because that's one way it spreads. But it's it's very well known that diseases are do not survive well if they kill their host too fast. So lethality is not a good measure of that. Um, and vaccination, a, the vaccination yeah, explains but, the extinction. Yeah, but without a host, how can they reproduce? They need a host to interact with. But it became worse right. over time at interacting with the host that's not helpful and then it was but that's not into yeah that's extinction. not reported in the paper though well they well they say i that think around... we should probably cut it off here because it'd be a whole nother debate if it's we could have yeah we'll do this, this paper <laughs> well you know what that needs to be a debate between snake and the author of the paper <laughs> that would be uh fun to to watch but anyways yeah no i appreciate it that interaction but yeah um, i think we're gonna have to start unwinding this down because grace has been <laughs> waiting for an after show for like an hour and a half now so uh maybe we should probably cut her short here but yes grace and i would like to be um come over there and discuss genetic entropy with you and yeah everyone check it out so um if you want to shut her down here sft that'd be awesome never we're going for at? another three hours snake <laughs> where's the after show at on Grayson's channel, it's the it's base theory. Familiar. That's his. Um, I'm still. I I see molasses molasses in the chat. Come on, I'm waiting for you to uh, man up and and come join me in this podcast or a debate. So, anyways, if people enjoyed this, this was episode one of this podcast. I enjoyed it, and I've got a few more planned. And so, for people that want to do, uh, you know, more of podcast related debate or discussion. Um, you know, in this specific one, we got, we had formal statements and rebuttals, very good discussion. And so if people enjoyed this, if they appreciated it, if they're looking forward to seeing more of these, please leave your comments. Let me know, give you, you know, give me your reviews. We, as people know here, you know, we're doing this full time. We got a ton of debates, four to five a week. And so I thought it'd be nice to mix in these podcast style discussions as well. Helps me to, to squeeze in a lot of the discussions that I want to have personally, since I'm left moderating a lot of debate. So leave your feedback, leave your comments. I love the topic of genetic entropy. I'm fascinated by it. Um, Taylor, I mean, you and I basically have been discussing this back and forth for four years. So this is fun, you know, uh, my arch nemesis, one could say. So thank you, uh, Snake, for doing this. It was a great first episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Why don't we give you uh, some final words, final thoughts as well? Yeah, thanks for having me for the first episode. And um, I guess I'll just say, I think I found out that that 
that quote was Kimura, but it was someone else quoting him to Sanford. So I think that'll correct the record. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes it because I mean, Kimura was born in like 1924. Yeah. So I don't think he was responding right to Dr. Sanford. Uh, praise. I, I did notice a super chat came in. Yes, I know. So why, don't <laughs> sneak, why don't you sneak it in for Taylor and then we'll completely shut it down. All right, Taylor. Humans lost ability to climb trees, run faster, lost fangs, lost fur, and takes a full year to walk 10 to 15 years to even fend for itself. How is he the fittest to survive? Because uh, we get to uh, sit on the couch playing video games instead of hunting in the forest. And we get to sit on YouTube and argue about it. I think, I think we uh, traded off pretty well. Pretty good trade-off there. Thank you so much okay. for that response. I mean, SFT, if you really wanted to, go ahead and make a short. <laughs> no, we're going on three hours. So that was fun. <laughs> Praise I am. Great job moderating episode one. Privileged to have you. We'll definitely have you uh, for more. You know what we'll do? We'll have different guest mods every podcast. So anyways, <laughs> to the audience, hope you enjoyed it. We were originally just going to pre-record these and then upload them later. So if you appreciated the fact that we did them live and then, uh, you know, I'll, I'll edit it a little bit, just like the opening intro music and stuff. We'll get it up on the uh, podcast website as well. So with that, everybody, uh, thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the podcast debate, the SFT podcast, creation versus evolution conversations. God bless.